To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. Dr. Alexandra was recently invited to be a speaker for the women of the Impact 100 Garden State Nonprofit Group on the topic, Finding the Beauty in Unexpected Circumstances. The following is a recording of that talk. Without further ado, here is Dr. Alexandra. It's wonderful to be here today. And today we are going to talk about how we can find beauty in unexpected circumstances. And in this talk, I'll bring the wisdom of poets, psychologists, authors, and more. The first poet I want to talk about is Rumi. Rumi was a Sufi Muslim from the 1200s from Afghanistan, born in Afghanistan and then later spent his time in Turkey. But the Sufis are the mystical branch of Islam, just like the Kabbalah for Judaism and the Christians have their mystical branches as well. But his poetry is so beautiful. And although he was from the 1200s, his poetry goes beyond the boundaries of time, of group identity. And one of my favorite poems of his is called Joy at Sudden Disappointment. I would recommend anyone to read it. I'm not going to read the whole poem. But in it, he writes a story about how a man takes off his boots so he can pray. And to his surprise, an eagle snatches away his boot. And he's mad and he calls the eagle rude. But then the boot turns over and out comes a snake. So now he says, oh, thank you. Thank you, eagle, for taking my boot. Now I understand. And now here's the part of the poem that I am going to read to you because I find it to be so challenging. So Rumi writes, Someone once asked a great sheik what Sufism was, and he answered, the feeling of joy when sudden disappointment comes. So since I read that poem, when I get disappointed, when things suddenly don't go as I expected, I find myself thinking about that line. And I say to myself, well, if I was a true Sufi, I would feel joy right now. But I usually don't feel joy right in that moment. <laughs> I'm a psychologist. And one of the theoretical orientations that we have, and we have many, is called acceptance and commitment therapy. And in this orientation, they hold that much of human suffering is due to our own psychological inflexibility. So when things don't go as I expected, and I'm not feeling the joy, I am not being flexible to what that moment is offering me, what that opportunity is offering me in tangible, psychological, and spiritual ways. So in that moment, 
I, we often have choices that we don't recognize. The famous Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl said, actually, some people doubt whether it's him or a psychologist who said this first. The quote is, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our freedom and our growth. So back to when you're suddenly faced with this unexpected circumstance and you don't feel good, right? You're left with a feeling. And often it does not feel like joy as Rumi wants us to. And it might feel like anger or shock or surprise or something else. What psychology has repeatedly shown is that we should not suppress our feelings. It doesn't work, meaning completely ignore the feeling or try to suppress it. And it's been described as a ball. Just imagine a blue ball that you try to push into a swimming pool deeper and deeper and deeper. What happens? Up it comes. So one way that we could deal with the feeling in an unhealthy way is referred to as the avoidance or escape responses. And unhealthy escape responses will temporarily relieve the anxiety, but it's not a long-term solution. For example, someone feels anxious when they come home from work and they drink. And yes, it might temporarily relieve the anxiety, but it's going to put them in a zone where they don't have to think or really be around or really truly be available. And they might not be spending time with their child, which is more in tune with their deepest value. Or someone who is feeling anxious about their marriage and they escape into binge eating, which might also feel like a zone. It might also feel like my time. And it is a way of escaping and not facing those feelings. And it's also a way that people will actually feel productive because you have to eat, right? So this is especially some of my very productive patients who um, have trouble not being productive. Facing those very difficult feelings. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I'm going to look inwards and change my sleep schedule. But I'm talking about the really tough ones. That's tough. That's hard. And I'm going to bring in another poet now, and it's Francesco Petrarch. And he was around in the 1300s, and he wrote about how he wanted to climb this high mountain, Mont Ventoux, which is in the Provence section of France. And he wrote this whole story about how he wanted to climb this mountain. And he finally does it and his brother comes along and they're starting this climb and the brother decides to go along the ridge, which is the harder way to go. And then he decides to take the longer path, which is easier. And then he runs into a shepherd and the shepherd has advice and stories. And you're just waiting and waiting and you're kind of excited about him reaching this summit and what's going to happen. What's he going to learn? So he reaches the top and then he pulls out a book and 
This book happens to be Augustine's Confessions, which is from around the year 400. And he has one of those moments where, and by the way, Augustine is the one who says, Lord, give me chastity and self-control, but not yet. So that book is great. So he pulls out Augustine's Confessions and he opens it up and he goes, here, it was one of those things where he just, he wants the wisdom from the book and he wants to see what comes up, right? So he goes here and then he reads, people are moved to wonder by mountain peaks, by vast waves of the sea, by broad waterfalls on rivers, by the all-embracing extent of the ocean, by the revolution of the stars, but in themselves, they're uninterested. And here, Petrarch writes that he had a discerning moment. It hit him. He didn't like it. He didn't like the feeling. He said to himself, that's me. And he went down the mountain in complete silence. And I have to say, when I read that, this little story, which was years ago when I was in college, it hit me also. It was a discerning moment for me. I felt like that was me, but my physical escape was more through running, which isn't a bad thing at all. It's a good thing. But I'm so proud of my patients who are doing the very difficult and courageous work of facing their difficult feelings and facing it, trusting that they're going to come out of it. For example, a 16-year-old boy who's been abused his whole life. Now he notices that with his friends, with his girlfriend, he's snapping. He's berating them. He's not being nice. And this anger is so strong. And he doesn't want to become the abuser in his future. So the difficult work right now is for him to actually face his anger. His anger at his friends is partially at his friends, but mostly about his past. So when that anger comes up right now, he's at the point of recognizing it, feeling it, and not acting on it the way he did before. Let me tell you, that's not easy. That hurts. That's courageous. And he might be the one to break generations of family abuse. He might be the one to break it. In a milder example, I'm going to say a little more about what you do next once you recognize your feelings, once you say, okay, it's there, I'm not going to suppress it. It's a different patient who has come back from college because of the quarantine. They sent everyone home. And now she's faced with having to self-direct her learning. And she is in statistics. And she doesn't want to do it. And she sits down to do it. And all of a sudden, everything else seems urgent. She impulsively feels like, I have to get up and check my phone. I have to go get a snack. I, I have to do anything. To, it's like this urgent thing that says, ah, she wants to run away from it. She didn't want it to be that way. She wanted to get it done. So I asked her, if you could put those uck feelings into more words, what would it be? She said, it would feel like, I think I may not be able to do these problems. 
I think it's not going to feel good when I do these problems. What if I don't do well in the class? What if I don't do well in all of it? I said, if you could put a color and a shape to it, what would it be? And she said, it would be like a green gas. So what we've done is I said, let the green gas be there. When it's time to do your statistics, say hello. Say hello to the green gas. (laughs) Say, I know you're with me. You can be there. You can be right there. And now I'm going to do the next problem. So what that means is you recognize the feeling. You acknowledge it. You almost make friends with it. You don't fight it. You say, I know you're there. And yet I'm going to do the thing that's important to me. I'm going to move on the things that I value. Last year at this time, we couldn't have predicted that this global pandemic would happen. And we couldn't have predicted we'd be in quarantine here in the Northeast of the United States and other parts of the world and all that comes with that. And so many of us are feeling restricted and confined in our homes. So for this next part, I want to share with you some research I did in preparation for this. I wanted to see what have other people done when they're restricted and confined. And I started with looking at Nelson Mandela. And what did he do when he was in jail? Because he probably didn't predict he would spend 27 years of his life in jail when he participated in a movement against the white supremacists. And the first 18 years, he was in a prison called Robbins Island. He slept on a very thin mat. He could only see his wife 30 minutes a year. He couldn't see his children at all for that time. And we can only imagine how painful that was. So what did he do? Well, he still had his deepest values. He still wanted to fight the values of the white supremacists. So he started small. At the time in the prison, the non-white prisoners got two teaspoons of sugar every day. And the black prisoners got only one teaspoon of sugar. Mandela made friends with the prisoners and made friends with his captors, built alliances, and got that changed so that everyone got one and a half teaspoons of sugar a day. Next, well, all the prisoners were doing hard labor in a limestone quarry. And he and some friends worked it and got that removed. They abolished the hard labor. And the last part I have to mention because I'm a tennis player. Mandela, who still slept on a mat, who still couldn't see his wife, convinced them to bring on a tennis court because he had gained weight after they stopped the hard labor. So he became a good tennis player. Most importantly, he wrote a 500-page autobiography about the anti-apartheid movement in addition to his experience 
and he got it snuck out by a prisoner who got out before him. They shrunk it to like 50 pages somehow. They snuck it out. It was published and he got out of prison in 1990 and he became the first black president of South Africa in 1994. So I wanted to see what did a woman do in prison. So I needed to find a woman. And I found Martha Stewart, the first female self-made billionaire in the United States. I don't know if everybody knows that. But she went to prison, a West Virginia prison for insider trading. Martha has talked about how she missed her family. She missed her pets. She missed the joy of going to work, the simple joy of going to work. And in a recent podcast, she was actually quite negative about her prison experience and said, basically, I don't recommend it to anyone. It was terrible. But when I did my research, I see that she did some things to make it beautiful while she was in there. For example, she didn't like the prison food. It was mostly expired food. So she made jam out of the crab apples in the prison yard. In addition, the prisoners were allowed to have three projects a year, three arts and crafts type of things. They could do three of those a year. She convinced them to let her do one nativity set and that it should count as one because she said, how can you have three camels? You have to have the whole thing. So she made her nativity set. Her family still laughs about it because her prison number is on the back of each one. But then she taught ceramics to the other prisoners. And then they asked her if she would create a course, a seminar on business practices. And she did. She created a seminar for them. And then she used the outline for that seminar to write a book, which was called Martha's Rules, all about what she's learned about business. And she got out in 2005 and she published the book in 2005. And importantly, she did the inner work. And this is her quote. I gained a new appreciation for the complexity of every single person's situation. And I certainly feel that way as a psychologist because you hear every side of every story and uh, it's hard to not have compassion and it's very hard to be judgmental when you hear every side. I want to give you an example now of someone who was constrained by physical limitations. And it's a man named Walker Percy. So in the early 1940s, he was a medical doctor. He was a pathologist and he was very excited about his career coming up in science. He loved science. But then he got tuberculosis from one of his autopsies. And he was sent to a sanitarium in the Adirondacks. That's what they used to do. And he was stuck in bed for years. What did he do? What did he do with his time? He read. He read and read and read and read all works of philosophy. He read Leo Tolstoy, who managed to write War and Peace with 13 children running around. He read Kierkegaard. He read Jean-Paul Sartre. He wrote 
life begins on the other side of despair and countless other philosophers. And the surprise that came out of it for him is that he changed his life path because he did come out of it. But he was much more interested in the inner workings of people when he came out. And that doesn't make science bad. I love science. But he started writing articles for philosophy and for psychiatry journals. And he became, I guess, more of a philosopher. And he became a writer. And he wrote his first novel. And it was called The Moviegoer. And it won the National Book Award. But I bring him up as an example. Because one of Rumi's quotes is, look carefully around you and recognize the luminosity of souls. Sit besides those who draw you to that, who draw you to that feeling, to that goodness. And Walker Percy drew those authors to himself when he was bedridden. But another important thing I want to point out about Walker Percy and all of these examples is that he showed the virtue, the virtues of curiosity and openness to learning. And I'm going to bring you to one of the main points of the talk pretty soon, but you may hear those two things, curiosity and openness to new learning and wonder, are those virtues? Well, in 2004, psychologist Chris Peterson and Marty Seligman did this massive study They wanted to create a classification of moral excellence. What they did is they looked at every major religion of the world, every major tradition, including Athenian philosophy, uh, Plato and Socrates, to try to see what, what do they have in common. First of all, they found that there were six main virtues that all of these religions and traditions had in common right? From these six virtues, they created a test as psychologists do, which they found it to be valid and reliable and all of that. Researchers gave this test to over a million people. Bob McGrath, who's from New Jersey, who teaches at Fairleigh Dickinson, he studied over 12 data sets of these tests of a million people on these six virtues, right? And he statistically analyzed them and he brought those six down to three through factor analysis. And what are those three? They are caring, inquisitiveness, and self-control, which he wrote about in the Journal of Positive Psychology in 2018. Now, here is a surprise. Which of those three among the million plus people do you think turns out to be the best single predictor of people having positive emotions? So they were caring, inquisitiveness, and self-control. Which one is the best single predictor of positive emotions? Well, the answer to that is inquisitiveness. It's about being curious. Can you be curious? Can you bring in creativity and zest into whatever you do? So in sum, how do we do what Rumi challenged me, what he challenges us to do when we are facing a sudden change of circumstances 
And we're trying to find the beauty. How do we do that? Number one, bring in psychological flexibility. Start with acknowledging and recognizing the feeling. Don't ignore it. Say hello to it. Acknowledge it. Doing this moves it to the thinking part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex. It helps you not to get what's called fused with that feeling. Step two, bring in the curiosity and openness to new learning. What does the disappointment teach you? What's it telling you? What does this new change in circumstance bring? What possible adventure is there here? And when I ask myself that question, I laugh because like I said, at the time, it doesn't feel good. And I'm like, okay, this is an adventure. How is this going to be an adventure? What can I do now? What can I control now? And step three, rather than getting caught up in the feelings like we mentioned, or getting caught up in what you don't like about the change of circumstances, take action on what you can do, what you do have. How can you make this lovely and beautiful for yourself, for others? And that's going to depend on you and on who you uniquely are, what you have to offer in this world what your deepest values are. And we can start small, just like Mandela started with sugar, with a a teaspoon of sugar. We all have the opportunity. When we have our perceived prisons, we might think we're being confined. We do have choices. If you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Psychology America. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasulo. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude, even when things don't go exactly as planned, and can be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com.